theyeshiva.net. Raton, Florida. Rabbis Ephraim Goldberg, Philip Moskowitz, and Josh Brody are taking you Behind the Bema. The BRS rabbis schmooze about contemporary issues and talk to special guests who give a behind-the-scenes look at how they got to where they are and what keeps them going. Welcome to Behind the Bema. Good evening. It's Wednesday, 9 p.m. I'm Rabbi Ephraim Gober, joined by my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz, and we're here to take you... Behind the Bema. We are here to go behind the Bema. Uh... Good tag team of me and Rabbi Moscow. So grateful and glad to be together. We have a very special guest. Rabbi Wawa Jacobson is a special person, an extraordinary speaker, a passionate leader, and there's so much to talk to him about. I hope you drink your coffee tonight. I hope you're ready to stay up late into the evening because we've got a lot on the agenda for Rabbi Jacobson, including his own background, his life story, including his relationship with the Rebbe, including the uh, time in which he made a blessing over President Trump or his welcoming of Robert Bashkin, there's a lot to talk about. But first, we have to thank our generous sponsor for this evening. A very big thank you to our sponsor, Karen and Simcha Herman of North Woodmere, in commemoration of the first year this past Sukkot of Shlema Yehuda Le Ben Miriam, who touched the lives including of so many, including the staff at, at Medical. Huge thank you to the Hermans, good friends of mine, of ours for a long time. Brother Naftali is an active member of our community, a leader in our community. And Sim Herman, in fact, is the one who put us together with Rav Waiwai. Thank you for making the connection. Thank you for sponsoring tonight. Thank you for sharing Torah and the light that you do. Trust me, what Rav Waiwai is going to share tonight is gold. Amazing. We want the world to hear it. It's not about us and our banter. It is about Rav Waiwai and his message, Avram Fried, Bidi Deutsch, and all the other incredible guests that we have had. When you review more people, stumble upon it and learn from it. And that is our goal. Thank God we make no living. We don't make one penny. We make no profit. This is not our livelihood. We are just in it to get the message and the light of our guests out there to the world. So again, thank you to the Hermans, our sponsors. Let me introduce Rav Waiwai before we bring him on by saying, although most people here know that Rav Waiwai is one of America's premier Jewish scholars and experts in, in mysticism, Kabbalah. He takes these complex ideas and is able to reduce them and communicate them in an accessible, accessible way. He speaks all over the world, six continents, 40 states. He's taught and mentored thousands um, all over. He is uh, an author. He has a website, theyeshiva.net, theyeshiva.net, where he teaches thousands around the world each and every day. Again, complex topics in the most passionate and compelling way. He served as the editor-in-chief. People don't realize this. Before he was such a prominent rabbi and speaker, he was a journalist. He inherited this from his father who began, but he was the editor-in-chief at one point of the largest Yiddish-English newspaper existing today, the Algemeiner Journal, and he's the spiritual leader of congregation base Shmuel in New York. Um, Rav Waiwai, in, in 10 seconds, Rav Moskowitz, what are you impressed by? What do you love about Rav Waiwai? Why are you excited to have this conversation? He is an excellent, excellent storyteller, and his width and breadth of Torah knowledge is mesmerizing. He's the real deal. That's the bottom line. We spent some time with him. It's not just a show. He didn't memorize three good speeches that he gives everywhere. He is the real deal, and it is a privilege to have him. Ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. It is a great privilege and a pleasure to welcome one of the great teachers, speakers, educators, inspirational personalities of our time, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Thank you so much for making some time to come behind the bima with us. My pleasure, my honor. Thank you for having me. We hope that you're feeling better and uh, feeling strong and feeling well. And we want to dive right in. This, you are a 
a fountain of wisdom and knowledge, and there's so many ways we can go, directions, things that we can talk about. Uh, but let's start with this. Let's start with your, obviously, Chabad background, the privileged relationship you had with the Rebbe Zatzal, and the role you played as being one of the, uh, being a choser for the Rebbe. The Rebbe gave shiurim that were hours uh, long on Shabbos, and a team of choserim listened carefully and recorded and shared. And that experience, what it meant to be privileged to be tapped to play that role at a young age, the responsibility of listening in a way that you were trying to remember. I don't know if you have any memory tools for our audience about how to use memory well. Um, and lastly, as part of this question, what was the Rebbe's reaction to the way that you wrote up his his sichas, his shiurim? Um, did the Rebbe give constructive criticism and how? Because I've shared many times one of the things that touched me very deeply about the Rebbe is that emphasis on positivity, positive language, and there's so much written about the Rebbe's understanding, Davar, Dibur, using only positive language. So how did he give constructive criticism in a way that didn't feel critical? Wonderful and very loaded questions. So let me try to uh, put it all into one uh, cohesive and delightful challenge. So I grew up in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, both of my parents, my late father, Olava Shalom, and my mother, may she be well, were immigrants from Soviet Russia. They grew up in the 1930s under the tyranny of the horrific Soviet regime, the Stalinistic purges, and the incessant persecutions against Jews and Judaism and really all religion. My grandparents were arrested. My grandfather was arrested, tortured, sentenced to death, and then commuted to 25 years in the Gulag. Ultimately, he made it out at the end of the Second World War. And both of the families, separately, with forged passports, Stalin allowed people who escaped from Poland to Russia, from Hitler's armies, to go back to Poland after the war. So they forged documents as though they were Polish citizens. And in 1946, they left the hell of the Soviet Union where they suffered terribly. My father was a child. He would always share with me the stories of you know, his father being taken away Friday night after Kiddush. For years, they didn't know if he's dead or alive. In any case, they left the Soviet Union. They came to Europe. They ultimately made it to the United States of America. They built their family in Brooklyn. My father was a journalist for more than 50 years. He worked for Newsweek, for the Herald Tribune. He was a UN correspondent for Yidiyot Achronot, which is Israel's largest uh, daily newspaper. He succeeded, actually, Eli Wiesel, Eli Wiesel, in that position. And then he founded, he worked for Yiddish newspapers. Then he founded his own Yiddish newspaper called the Algemeine Journal, which he ran till his death in 2005. My grandfather, his name was Simon Yakabashvili. My real name is not Jacobs. <laughs> My name is Yakabashvili, which is a Georgian name. He came from a long dynasty of Georgian Jews. They have a tradition that they came there after the destruction of the first temple. Very, very religious, God-fearing Jews living in Georgia, Kutais. This is not Georgia, Atlanta. This is <laughs> Georgia, South Russia. And interestingly, when he was 18, this is my grandfather, he got a scholarship to go to Italy, from Georgia, Russia to Italy, to study the fur business, which was the family business. And on the way, he stopped in a city called Rostov at the Dan River in Russia. And for those last few years, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Sholem Ber Schneerson, known as the Rebbe Rashab, who died in 1920, he escaped the Germans coming into Belarus during the First World War. He escaped. He didn't want to be under the Germans. And he moved to Rostov. 
And that's why my grandfather, a young 18-year-old Sephardic Georgian, tall, strong, handsome kid with no connection to really the whole Ashkenazic world, the Hasidic world, certainly, he was on the way to Italy. But Rosh Hashanah, he davened with the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe, and uh, something touched him very deeply. And he met him, and he visited him, and the Rebbe told him then, I think you should spend some time learning in yeshiva, and one day you'll go to Italy. And he felt that that was his place, and he remained there, and he became a very uh, close disciple of the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe, then the 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe, who succeeded his father in 1920, known as the Rayats, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the father-in-law of the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. And when Lenin and the Bolsheviks transformed Russia, now most Jews don't understand what happened. The Yevsektia was the Jewish section of the Communist Party. In 10 years, they managed to destroy Judaism in the Soviet Union in a way that has not been done over 200 years of enlightenment. 200 years of enlightenment managed to cut 50% of Russian Jewry away from Judaism. But the Yevsektia, in 10 years, 1919 to 1929, headed by a man who had smicha from Reb Chaim learned in Tells, his name was Shimon Dimenstein, they became such a force of tyranny that in 10 years Judaism in the Soviet Union was literally almost completely dead. Mamish almost dead, and it remained that way. Everything went underground for 70 years till communism fell. Uh, Stalin ultimately shot everybody. He destroyed the whole of Sektsia because they were too Jewish. <laughs> you know how it worked in Russia. But the Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, took nine students. It's a very, very moving story. And he said that most Jews live now in the Soviet Union. There will be no memory and trace of Judaism left. I want to make a kaf, an oath with you. I'll be the 10th. We have a minion. We're going to preserve Yiddishkeit in the Soviet Union until our last drop of blood. Do you agree? And the nine students agreed. With a handshake to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, they made this commitment. He divided the country among them to create an underground network of flourishing Yiddishkeit. Schools, Rabbonim, Shochtim, Melamdim, Moyalim, Sidurim, Machzorim, Gemara, Svarim. The Rebbe created, it's unbelievable, 600 underground Jewish schools in the 20s and in the 30s. You know how hard it is to fund one Jewish day school in America today, right? Now, this is under Stalin, where you were shot like uh, he killed 50 million of his own people, 50, more than Hitler. My grandfather was one of those nine, one of those nine, and he was arrested. He was tortured very badly. Anyway, the bottom line is he died young with my grandmother. They both died very young shortly after they left, shortly after their exodus. My father and his two brothers were young orphans, but they rebuilt their lives. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in Brooklyn in the in the community and sitting at the feet of the Lubavitcher Rebbe for many, many years. What happened was the Rebbe would speak Shabbos between three and seven hours. Now, you and I... <laughs> that's what I wanted to tell you. You and I especially people who went to rabbinic schools and training and communication. You learn, you need jokes, you need stories, you take off your glasses, you put on your glasses, you run around in this. 
The Rebbe didn't do that. He barely ever said a joke, once in a while. He barely said a story, once in a while. He said some, but, but that wasn't his thing. He could speak for an hour, two hours. Arambam, Hadrin, Asiyom, Anshas, Azoyer, Kabbalah, Nigla, Pilpu, Rishonim, Achroinim, Chzidus, contemporary events, education, Hashkofa, Machshava, Meir Nevuchim, philosophy. There was a mosaic, you know, his, 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 can quote of, he knew the Vilna, you know, he knew every Malbim Baalpen, every Vilna Gon, from all, all segments of, of Jewish thought. And there was no tape recorder, it's Shabbos and Yom Tov. So it all had to be memorized, everything. And it was history in the making because we all knew that what he's revealing, he's not going to repeat. And this is unprecedented layers of depth in Torah, Machshava, Hashkafa, inspiration. <coughs> Leadership about you know where we, what our duty is today, the nature of our generation. He would combine it all, the practical and the analytical, the transcendent and the and the and the earthly. And uh, so there was a group already from day one. The Rebbe assumed leadership in 1950 after his father-in-law's passing, and there was a group headed by a man who just passed away. His name was Rabbi Yoel Khan. He passed away last August, Vav of at the age of 90. He arrived on a boat to the previous Rebbe days after his passing. He didn't know that he died. So he left Israel to come learn by the Rebbe in 1950. He came to New York and he found out that the previous Rebbe passed away. So he was there from day one. He was a brilliant mind. So he was what's called the head chayzer, the main person to memorize and transcribe. But he always trained with him a team of, of Bachrim or Yungalait who were skilled at this. I was already from the next generation. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't yet. A, in 1950, I was still a, a divine thought, what they call in Kabbalah Machshava Hakduma the Adam Kadman. I was born only in 72, but I had an older brother who was part of that team. And when I was young, I guess I displayed some uh, affinity and ability in this field. So I was taken in to the to, to that group of the Chayzim actually during the last years of the Rebbe until he suffered a stroke which was in March 92. But he would fabring every Shabbos. Now you have to understand, Yom Tif, Shabbos Bereshit, sometimes he had a three-day holiday. He would do four, five fabrengans. You're talking about 10, 20 hours. Not a five-minute speech, not an hour. 10, 20 hours of deep, deep shiurim in Nigla, Chalocha, Kabbalah, Chassidus, Ashkaf, Machshav, and everything. A lot of times current events, you know, Eretz Yisrael, the Jewish world, education, Kiruv, outreach, challenges, crises, shalom bayis, whatever it was. One Fabrengen can have just a tapestry and a mosaic of, of hundreds of themes and topics, you know. Then suddenly you say, well, I'm going to make a siyam on shas. <laughs> so siyam on shas for an hour and a half. You know, there's a siyam one day, there's a siyam on zvachim, a siyam on tamur. And, and he didn't give no, no notes and he didn't prepare you before. There was no Chazor Sashir to prepare the materials. Then there could be a Maimah Chassidus in the deepest esoteric ideas of Chabad uh, Hasidic spirituality, you know, Kabbalah. No, no, he, he did not have notes. Uh, there were a few times that they saw, but by the song he had like a few words on a piece of paper, also very rarely. He did not speak from notes. And uh, he also would never stand up in middle. You know, you're talking about a person, 85, 87, 88, to sit for hours without a break, without a break. He could talk, and then they sang, beautiful niggin, and then he would resume the talking, another niggin. The niggin was just a few minutes. So uh, it was, what should I tell you, it was very, very intense. <laughs> it was not easy. Uh, Mitzay Shabbos was a very, 
very difficult night. Uh, all my friends, you know, good good Jewish kids in Brooklyn, you go for pizza, what's the halacha Matzai Shabbos? Pizza, the Mahadrin do bowling, Mahadrin and Mahadrin do even more interesting things. Uh, but certainly it's, you know, Matzai Shabbos is a certain relaxation. But till today, my wife knows, Saturday night, I suffer from PSS, post-Shabbos syndrome, because I knew that there's not going to be any sleep for me, Matzai Shabbos, and probably not Sunday night either. It was very challenging, but also unbelievably rewarding. And we all felt that we're like part of the transmission of history of the Messiah. And if we don't memorize it and transcribe it, it's going to be lost for eternity. So today, there's more than a hundred volumes of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's talks that literally inspire and enlighten the Jewish world in extraordinary ways. And most of it is from those transcripts that were written the days after Shabbos. And what would happen was, Mitzay uh, Shabbos, Rabbi Yoyal, Olavar Shalom, the main chayzer, would gather the chevra, Mitzay Shabbos, and uh, he would go over everything. He would repeat everything. It took a few hours. There were a lot of arguments and debates back and forth. He sometimes got very upset. At the, he spoke in Yiddish. <laughs> he was a brilliant man. He could not tolerate the ignorance or stupidity. So there were a lot of arguments. The Rebbe said this. No, he didn't mean it. Whatever. You know, that's how it went. But it was all recorded to the best of our ability. And over the week, it was transcribed, edited. Sometimes... The Rebbe would edit certain parts. Most of it he did not edit. He relied on the writers. And uh, it was all published in volumes known as Lekutei Sichos, Teres Menachem, Esvaduya, Sichos Kodesh, many, many, many volumes. You asked about his uh, his role as a critic. You see, I remember all your questions. I've been trained, yeah. Uh, so I did Al Rishin Rishin. I tried to do, by be a Chacham, a Goylem, and do Al Rishin Rishin, Al Acheren Acheren. So I have to say this, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was a very, very kind man, and they used to say he was a gentleman, he was a very gentleman. But when it came to the work on his talks, he really demanded, uh, I can't say perfection, but he was very, very exacting. He was very, very critical. We knew that it wasn't personal, it's because he, the Rebbe did not tolerate, he did not like mediocrity. (laughs) He didn't like when people felt they were mediocre, he, you know, he didn't like when something wasn't done the way it could be because of laziness or because you don't believe in yourself or because of you're timid, because of you're shy. And the writers and the editors, it was private correspondence. But if the Rebbe found a mistake or something inconsistent or the source in the Rambam or the Mishnah or the Rajba or the Ramban was wrong, the Rebbe, you know, the Rebbe would get upset. I remember he once wrote, after 30 years, I'm not here to teach you olive base. Because he saw some some gross error. Sometimes he would write on the top of a talk, Mavhil, which means shocking. Shocking how somebody can write these words. Uh, once he wrote a very sharp criticism, and at the bottom, at the end, he wrote, Ve'itchem haslicha, my apologies to you. But usually, it wouldn't come with that. But the truth is, we saw it as a privilege. It wasn't criticism like, you know, your self-esteem is being shattered. It was a privilege that Lubavitcher Rebbe one of the greatest minds in many generations should literally take this text and dissect it and erase and delete and add. It was like a privilege just to see to see such genius and such holiness embodied on paper. It was even criticism of such a person was was the greatest self-esteem booster you can get in your life. You probably know the story with uh, the Svasemis. It's an amazing story. The Svasemis was an orphan. 
the Chidush Harim, Rabbi Shemeyer, the first Geri Rebbe, lost every child besides a daughter in his lifetime. He had 12 children, 13 children. It's unbelievable. One daughter survived. And one of the boys from Mardukhai left the Sfasemmes, Rabbi Huda Arileb. So the Chidush Harim raised him. And there was a, the condition, he had to wake up early in the morning, and he would learn for a few hours, and Davin, the Minigin Ger. Once the Sfasemmes was learning all night, so he overslept Shachris. So after, when he woke up, the Chidush Harim called him, called him with his Chavrusa and said, where were you for Shachras? So Sadrus doesn't answer. Chidushidim gives a whole drasha how you don't miss davening. So the Chavrusa asks the Svasemas. He says, Why didn't you tell the Zayda you were learning all night? Why didn't you tell him? So he says, In Parshas Matais, you have the longest speech of Moshe Rabbeinu in the whole Torah. The Bnei God and Bnei Ruven tell Moshe, We want to settle in the Transjordan, right? So Moshe Rabbeinu gives them a Musa speech, you are fear mongers, your brothers go to war, you're going to stay here, and you're going to dissuade the entire nation of going into Israel, just like the spies did 40 years ago, we're going to have another catastrophe for another 40 years. And he goes on and on, Lama how could you be so irresponsible, how can you be so cruel? And when he finishes the drasha, they tell Moshe, no, we're going to war, we just want to settle. So Asemus tells his friend, right when Moshe started to scream at them, you can't be so detached. They should have said, no, no, Moshe, Moshe, Moshe. We're going to war. We're going. We're not separating. We're not the Miraglim. We're not inculcating fear. We just want to settle this place afterwards. So Asemus says, because when Moshe Rabbeinu gives Musa, you don't interrupt him. You listen. He says, my Zayda is talking to me about coming to Davani, coming on time. He says, you don't interrupt him. He says, these are the things you, these are the things you want to hear. <laughs> well, I'll, tell you why, I'll tell you why it's fascinating to me about the Rebbe in this way. I remember the summer of the 20th year outside of the Rebbe, all these biographies came out about the Rebbe. And I read them all. I gobbled them up because of such an inspirational person. I wanted to learn more. But one of the things, I had a tremendous yeish. It really, on the other hand, depressed me because I read about how the Rebbe never took one day off. In his life, he didn't take one vacation day. He didn't take one hour. He didn't take one. And I read about the Rebbe. It was only positivity. It wasn't negativity. It wasn't disappointment. It wasn't frustration. And so on the one hand, I gained in my own reverence for the Rebbe, but I felt much worse about myself. Myself as a person, myself as a, as a Rav. It's like, I, I need a day off. I'm human. But I don't know. The Rebbe didn't take a day off. So it was, it was a very mixed summer of reacting to reading those biographies. So hearing that the Rebbe could read these notes and he had emotion, human emotion. He was frustrated. He was disappointed. He wanted it to be better. He didn't want to tolerate the mediocrity. I, I haven't read that or seen that. And I think it's so important to communicate that about the Rebbe or people like the Rebbe. The people are complicated. And even our greatest people also were human, had a human component to them. So that's very uh, interesting to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to, see, to see how he edited a talk, there was so much to learn from it. The choice of words the precision, and never to express yourself negatively. He, he, you know, he didn't like the word death. He would write the antithesis of life. If you wrote Ra, he would write the opposite of Toiv. It was just an approach of how to look at something. Also the respect for every word in Torah, the awe, the reverence, the diuk, how, to, how he would change a question. You learned intellectual clarity. You learned brisker precision what they call hagdoros, chilukim, differentiations, distinctions, definitions, compartmentalizations, categorizations, syntax, 
grammar. There was, there was a lot to learn from his, incredible amount of learn from his editing, both in terms of style and uh, substance. You learned also that you have to know that you have to know everything. You have to learn everything. You have to, you have to as much as your best. You have to really go, really go through the material and, and master it. Can I just ask a follow-up question? You were describing. I just stop. Stop. An interesting thing. It's interesting. In Chabad, they wouldn't know this. The Rebbe would sometimes quote a sefer, and quote it. He would quote it, and then he would say, "But check it up in the library because it was for memory. I, it, it, I didn't have a sefer." And it was smart. He once quoted, today Reb Tzaddik is popular. In the 1960s, there were a few people who even heard of Reb Tzaddik Mulublin. But in one sikha, the Rebbe was speaking about celebrating a birthday. And he quotes in the sikha, look in Resise Laila, Rav Tzaddik, Reb Tzaddik HaKoyim Mulublin, and he quotes it. And then he said they should check it up. It was Mamash verbatim. So it was interesting, you know. It was a Chabad Rebbe, but he knew every line of Reb Tzaddik of Lublin. Once quoted a Machzer Vitri, also, who knows Machzer Vitri? Mamish verbatim, and he said to check it up. Rabbi Kiva Eger, Sefer Chsidim, he didn't have it in his room. And once, there's a Sefer from the Malbim called Eretz HaChayim. Most people never heard of it. I think it's called Eretz HaChayim. And then also, he, he, he was interesting in the footnotes, he referenced it, but he said they should look it up because he didn't have it in his room and he was working on it. So you also saw a different level of, uh, of Torah mastery that is unparalleled because it was. Gemara Shas, Yerushalmi, Rosh, Rif, Rambo, but also all this form of Kabbalah and philosophy. Very rare combination in one person. But Rabbi Maskos, let me just jump in with one more follow-up, then I'm going to let you in, I promise. And, and, and Ravoy, I hope you have the rest of the night for this because there's so much to talk about. The, did the Rebbe successfully transmit that to his Hasidah? We have a large and vibrant and strong and beautiful Chabad community within our shul. We have a beautiful Shtibel Minyan Shabbos morning. We have a tremendous amount of Chabad who've moved here. And, and recently we were fabringing together, and I brought this up with them, is that the world of Chabad is magnificent and the Torah is so deep but there's a beautiful sea of Torah out there, and how come they don't expose themselves? Go learn, whether it's other Hasidus, go learn some greats of contemporary machshava, go learn, be exposed to. And it, we had a whole conversation about that, and where someone said, look, if, if the food that you're being served is delicious, why do you need to eat it out? Why do you need to eat someone else's food? What we have is perfect, it's the most nourishing, it has everything in it, there's nowhere else to turn. And there was a defensiveness and an argument, and there was a significant... Labavitch personality who's published many of the Rebbe's uh, 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 Svarim, who felt very strongly that no, we have a Hasidus and we're learning this derech and we don't want to dilute it or compromise it or have it become distorted by exposing other things to it. So while the Rebbe may have quoted from all over, it doesn't seem like, at least from, from that conversation, that was something that he encouraged for among his Hasidim. Well, listen to my shiurim a little more. <laughs> You are, I think, no, 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 I do listen, but I think you're the exception. The Torah world embracing you, many non-Chabad, many people who are antagonistic to Chabad love you and embrace you because they see you as the exception to the rule. Meaning, you happen to be Chabad. You happen, you happen to be Chabad, but you're also bringing from all over. Yeah, listen, I really can't speak for anybody else. Uh, you know, I don't feel it behooves me to do so. And I really can't because I don't know what you know what's in people's minds. But I know, you know, when what I sat by the Rebbe's feet and listened to him for many, many years, and it taught me that the approach of expansiveness is so much more real and authentic because Hashem is ain't safe. You know, God is infinite. 
And how do you contain infinity in one box? How do you contain infinity through tunnel vision? Infinity you only contain through complete humility and complete openness to the endless horizons of the mysteries of creation, the mysteries in every Jew, and of course the endless mysteries in Torah. As the Pesach says, Arucha merits mida, or you know, longer than any measurement and larger than the sea. And his whole attitude was based on that. And the truth is, I think anybody who takes any published sicha of the Rebbe in Lakuta Sichas, you'll see, I didn't do this directly, so I can't take full responsibility, but I'm not sure that there's any contemporary, maybe besides Rebbe Vadya Yosef, that in one sicha the Rebbe could quote literally between 400 and 800 sources from every conceivable type of sefer. I should just add for maybe intellectual clarity that there is one distinction I think it's important to make, and that is the Maimorim of Hasidus of Chabad will rarely quote from other sources because they have a genre. And I'll give you an example. If you're learning Chidushe Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi al Rambam, right? Or Chidushe Hagriz, talking the brisket Torah, you will never find a clay yokar quoted. <laughs> right? You'll never find the Bircha Shmuel him quoting Erachayim uh, or clay yokar. Why, the Chayim didn't like the clay yokar? I don't know what he held about the clay yokar. The clay yokar is, is, is a special commentary. The answer is, it's a genre, right? Chidushe Hagrach is a genre. Chidushe Hagriz is a genre. Just like Rabbi Soloveitchik, the Rav, Shiurim Lezecher Abamari, or his Kotsim Chidushe Teiru, his Rishimus on Shaz that came out in last years. It's a certain genre, call it the Briske Derech, the Briske Mahalach. It's a certain style, and the Klayoker doesn't really fit into that. Chabad Chassidus is a all-encompassing, holistic shita developed by the Balatanya based on the Magen and the Balshemtev, and the Maimorim are a certain genre that represents the Chabad shita of Hashkafa, of Machshava, of uh, the Yahadus perspective developed by the seven generations from the Balatanya all the way to the Rebbe. So that genre is self-contained. Like the Rebbe in his Maimorim wouldn't just, you know, quote from here or there because it was a certain style. Yeah, he would quote Noyem Ali Melech, he would quote Ketusha Slevi, of course, the Balshemtev, the Magen, and some of the the greatest Hasidic masters outside of Chabad of the first generation. But over there, there was, and there is, a certain style that is that is uh, defined by the teachings and the style of the Chabad Rebbes. So I think maybe there's, over there, there could be some confusion. Hi. Understood. Okay, if I could just, if I could just take us back to the original conversation. Sure. Uh, I'm mesmerized by the number of hours that the Rebbe gave Asicha, and uh, having been to... Um, one of you shirim in person and listen to many online, um, you're not giving shirim in tidbits. And I say this lishvach, right? Your ideas are thought out, they're developed, they're, right, they're articulate. Double speed was created. Double speed was created for me. <laughs> no, but I think it's lishvach. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in society as a whole, where we have reduced so much to sound bites, into little memes, into one-liners, you specifically have chosen not to take that path. You give your shurim, you develop the ideas. That was clearly the mahalich of the Rebbe, of giving long, drawn-out, well-thought-out ideas. I'm wondering if you have a comment on what that's doing to our society, first of all. And I think even within Torah learning, I think we're seeing that, right? Someone says a vort. They quote this, they quote that, but they're not looking at the source inside. They're not developing a mahalich. Yeah. They're not developing an idea. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, listen... People have always told me, and I'm talking about very close people, they said, you speak long, get up five minutes, six minutes, ten minutes. You say a vart and you sit down. 
and I understand them. <laughs> Say, nobody's going to listen, nobody's going to internalize. But I, I appreciate what they're saying, and that's why I cherish, you know, WhatsApp clips, and I have some of my people always doing clips, because some people just want 60 seconds. Gesundheit, hate a fast vart, a fast maisa, a nakuda, a little music, a little animation, and they get their inspiration for the day. So be it. We like to be there for every person according to their capacity. But I know for myself, and for me it's actually respect. I know for myself, when I hear or read something that's well thought out, built up, I know from the Rebbe hearing how he would build an idea. He gave once a Hadron on Rambam. He made us see him on the whole Rambam, the whole Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. The way he built it, he spoke for close to two hours and then he continued the next Shabbos, the next Shabbos, the next Shabbos. The way he built it, the questions... The Mivna, it was architecture, literally art. You build the foundations. You put up another floor, another floor, another floor, and then you hit the peak. And then I, we can appreciate the expansiveness of Torah, the broadness of Yiddishkeit, the godliness of a Posek, of a Maimachazal, of a Sugya, of an Inyan, of a Halacha, of a Shitta. So to say, just because we live in a generation of sound bites, and we live in a generation where half of us have been diagnosed as ADD and ADHD and all of the, under, all of the other wonderful uh, definitions and diagnoses, which, by the way, have some mileage. I, I gave a shir last Shabbos, and there were a bunch of bachim from a particular yeshiva. They call themselves ADHD yeshiva. Fine. They sat, and a guy came over, one of the bachim came over to me, and he said, I'm ADHD, but you could have spoken another few hours. I said, how if you're ADHD? He says, listen, we ADHDs, so what he told me? He says, we get bored fast when it's boring. But when somebody touches the spot, when you get into my soul and you're dealing with what I'm really dealing with, we could listen for six hours because we get turned on deeply. And it was a very profound thing he was telling me. So I have found that, yes, there's a lot of jokes about sound bites, and it's true. And Rabbanim and Shuls, we have here prominent Rabbanim. You know how long your sermon is allowed to be, <laughs> how short it's allowed to be. But I have found, I have gotten so much positive feedback of real shiurim that really present an idea in all the oirech and roichev and oimek, as much as my own capabilities allow to present it. And I find that there's a significant amount of people we underestimate people's intelligence and we underestimate people's depth. And I think it's very important never to underestimate it. But here's the mistake that some of us teachers make, and that is we want they should just love it because we're giving it. It's not going to be that way. You have to really speak to the people. That means rich, beautiful, elegant, structure, depth, and most importantly, emotional relevance. You got to speak to their struggles. You got to speak to their heart. You got to speak to their soul. You got to speak to the reality they're living in, not some fictional reality that you would love them to live in, which everybody detaches from immediately. But when we can do that, I think that uh, on the contrary, there's a significant, huge amount of people who really cherish true amkos, true depth. You just touched on it because I was, I was going to follow up by asking you, 
Um, you're enormously popular. People are real Hasidim, learn, live, and are inspired. Someone I'm very close with who lives in Muncie, who is a Litvish person who learned the Dafyomi for many, many years and brisker Torahs and would never touch Hasidus, now comes to you every morning, put on a gartel. He told me it's because he's putting on his seatbelt. He's buckling up before he davens. And there's a real Hasid of yours. So you have you resonate deeply and profoundly for many. And I was going to ask, what is it about your message that you think is really penetrating and resonating? You answered that. But so I'll ask a corollary of it is how much preparation goes into your shirim and, and your speeches? You clearly give it your all. You're emotionally invested. Um, tell us about the mechanics of how to tell a good story. Half of the meaningful minutes are you because you have mastered the art of telling a story, the same story that that many others are trying to repeat over, copying Rav Waiwei. They're saying the story, it falls flat, it's an air ball, they can't say the story. You tell that story, and it's a room full of people, they're a puddle of tears. What are the mechanics of telling a good story? How much prep goes into these shiurim? And what is it about the style that's resonating so deeply? You mean it's not because Nachi Gordon likes my looks? That too. <laughs> okay. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I think that... Um... You ask me how long it takes to prepare. So, you know, it's maybe cliche, but it's the truth. I'm always preparing. I, I never stop preparing. Meaning, I, sometimes for a particular drasha, I could prepare five minutes, but I've been preparing for years. Sometimes I need a few hours or a few days or a few weeks to research. But I'm always preparing, meaning I'm always trying to learn and trying to grow and trying to stimulate my own mind. I once received spectacular advice from Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. You remember Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, who wrote 70 Svarim, the first translator of Gemara before anybody else, Rabbi Adin Evan Yisrael, who passed away last year at the age of 83. And I once went to Eretz Yisrael for speaking, and I went to seek his advice. This is 20 years ago. And he told me something very special. He said, he was a very sharp Jew. He, he, he talked about criticism. You know, he knew how to cut somebody down if he wanted to. So I asked him advice. I said, you know, you have been speaking for years. You've been writing Svarim. I'm just starting. This is two, more than two decades ago. It was Shabbos afternoon in his, in his cottage. He had a little garden behind his home in the German colony in Jerusalem. The sun was setting. He sat me down on the stem of a tree and he sat on some other stem of a tree it wasn't shaking, so it wasn't an issue of mukta. And uh, <coughs> I asked him this question just for general advice. And he told me something, and he said, I want to share something with you. You know, my wife went to a few speeches of yours in Jerusalem, and she says you're good. If you're good, you're probably going to get better. You'll probably get so good that at some point you won't have to prepare, and people will call you, and you won't even have to know the topic. When you get up to the pulpit, you'll see a flyer on the pulpit, and it's going to say marriage, education, psychology, fear, happiness, abuse. And you'll open the filing cabinet, and you'll take out the you know canned speech, and you'll speak for an hour. You'll get a standing ovation. They'll give you a check. You'll go home, and everybody will be happy. He says, and you'll do this professionally, and you will do it impeccably. He's telling this to me. And then he whispers, and he says, and then one day, you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to see that there's nobody there. There's just a mouthpiece. There's nothing left. There's no person. There's only a mouse mouthpiece. And at that moment, you will know that you have virtually died. There's no person left. There's just a mouthpiece. I was taken aback. 
And he was basically saying that what happens to many is they just become copies of themselves. You know, everything is canned. Everything is prepared. So I have to interrupt this with one of the... (laughs) This is how I speak. (laughs) One of the best insights of the Kotzke Rebbe. The Medrash says in Kaihelas that we have different seasons in life, right? When we're born, we're treated like kings. He says, then we become like pigs, searching through the garbage. He says, then we become like goats, jumping around everywhere. He says, at 20, we become like horses, grooming ourselves, looking for a beautiful woman. He says, then we become like, (coughs) excuse me, like donkeys, schlepping all day to make a living. He says, then we become like dogs. We need a chutzpah chutzpah, barking to be able to pay all of our bills. And then when we become old, we become like chimpanzees. Asks the Kotzker, there the Medrash doesn't explain why. Why when we become old, we become like monkeys or chimps? So most say because, you know, we make tricks. We do imitations for the Eneklach to entertain the grandkids. Kotzker says something so profound. He says, when you become older, you often become like a monkey or a chimp or a gorilla, imitating. He says, who do you imitate? You imitate yourself. You went into a certain mold. This is who I am. I'm not changing. He says, once I hit 50, 60, 70, 80, I'm just imitating myself. I daven today because I davened yesterday. I go to shul today because I went to shul yesterday. I learned afyayim today because I learned yesterday. I celebrate Pesach because I celebrated Pesach last year. Just like I brush my teeth today because... He says, you become an imitation of yourself. No creativity. No newness. Nothing fresh. So this is basically what he was telling me. You're going to become a monkey. You know, you'll copy yourself. You'll get your check. It's nice. But you'll know that you're a dead man walking. So I asked Rabbi Adin, what do I do? What do I do to avoid this? This is 25 years, almost 25 years ago. He said, what you do is, you don't stop learning. You don't stop challenging yourself. You don't stop exploring new things that you never knew about that make you learn more about your emotions, your heart, your brain, your mind. Yes, so what are you learning? Tell, tell us what you're learning now. What are you learning now and how are you challenging yourself? <coughs> so this was amazing advice. So really, I just, I just constantly, constantly try to learn. Today, <laughs> excuse me, just, just an, an example. I mean, I'm learning Masech Rosh Hashanah like many other Jews. <coughs> Excuse me. And I gave Shiurim on the whole Masech Rosh Hashanah, but it's still always a new Masech every time, every time you learn it. You know, I have my Shiurim, the Lubavitcher Rebbe instituted a Shir Rambam that is an incredible, it's one of the best kept secrets in the Jewish world. Learning through the Rambam, <coughs> people don't realize, is an unbelievable way of mastering Yiddishkeit in a way that you can't get it from other Svarim. Because nobody besides the Rambam categorized all of halacha in an organized way, even halachas of Mashiach and the Beis Hamikdash, in the most systematic, organized way. There's a certain mastery of Torah that is available to everybody, even people who can become Pekiyim and Shas and all the Pratim. That's incredible. So those are very refreshing shiurim for me that constantly, you know, daily Chumash, we have by us what's called chitas, daily chumash, daily tehillim, daily tanya. You know, just learning the parsha with the mafarshim is something that a lot of Jews forgot about. You know, they go right away to deep stuff. It's embarrassing. I quote a pasuk in the parsha Sashavu, and nobody could finish it. Nobody could finish it. People stopped learning Tanakh 
just the parsha was like every Jew knew it. It says should learn Rashi also. So just these types of shiurim. Then I have my own shiurim. Whether <coughs> excuse me, in nigla meaning in halacha, gemara, rishonim, achreinim, and other elements, machshava, hashkafa, kabbalah. I learn a lot of Hasidic works, kabbalistic works, hashkafik, machshavic works from really all segments, and I always try to explore and. The truth is, every year you learn it again, and there's more and more and more. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, <laughs> once said something about the Chumash, and he compared the Tanya to it. And he said that, uh, <laughs> he says, the Chumash is learned by the Gadol Shabbat by the Katan Shabbat by the greatest of the grace, greatest, and by the smallest of the small. And he says, everybody understands something, and nobody understands everything. You know, you read the story of Light and his daughters. You know, you read the story of the Akedah. How many times can you read the story of the Akedah? A hundred? I could read it a hundred million times, and every time I'm like, wow, how did he do this? What was he feeling like when he went with Yitzchak? You know, every year it's a, it, 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 it's, it's a new story. Every year it's a new story. I just learned today uh, a Sikh of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Lakuti Sikhis Parshas Vayer explaining the shit of Rambam and Achnosis Archim. The Rambam's Geder, the Rambam doesn't call it Achnas Azarchim. The Rambam in Hilchis Avil Perik Yudalit says, Mitzvah Saseh, Lelavais Ha'archim. The Mitzvah is to escort the Archim, to say goodbye. And he asks, that's the Mitzvah to say goodbye, to close the door, to say Baruch Shepatrani. The Mitzvah is to bring them in. The Rambam calls it Lelavais Ha'archim. And he develops the whole shit of the Rambam and Achnas Azarchim with all of his footnotes. And it was just uh, an eye-opening. Really, he says that what the Ramam is telling you is that Achnasas Archim is not about feeding the guests. That's the small part of Achnasas Archim. Real Achnasas Archim, the Ramam is teaching you of Avram Avinu, is the idea that you make the guest feel dignity. You're part of my home. You're part of my family. I appreciate you. Where do you see that? In how you say goodbye. You know, when you stand up, you say, we just spent three hours, Baruch Shepatani. You go to the door, you take him outside, you say, I want to spend another few minutes with you. It's hard for me to say goodbye. The Leviyah, saying goodbye, the Ramam says, Kol Mishainim Alava Reza Shoifich Domim. Shoifich Domim? I didn't say goodbye, I didn't escort you outside, I became a murderer. So the Farshim say, because he could get killed in the street. I said, what about, what about in, in, in Boca Raton? Baruch Hashem, what about in Muncie, in Bar, Bar Park? The, you're not talking about the wilderness in every place. The Rebbe says, because when you make the guest feel that he was a burden, it's a form of emotional murder. You know, this this type, this the, it's just, my point is that our Torah is so infinite in every aspect of it. And I think our world and the Jewish world and our youth deserves to smell, sniff, and experience the taste of the infinite, divine, limitless richness of Torah, the Nigla and the Pnimius, because that, that mosaic, that integration, it changes lives, it, it uplifts the world. Do you ever learn just for yourself, or it's always to give over to other people? In other words, is there a limud that you say, this is... Yeah, well, most of my learning I learn for myself, but as I'm learning for myself, you know, I, I think, I reflect, I meditate, and something comes, and I said, this is the next year. You know, I, I I opened up Friday morning. I'm just an example. Svasemes, Parshas Vayera. I, I love the Svasemes very much, especially that I'm privileged because the Svasemes is so cryptic and so concise. Most 
essays or classes or svarim that I saw in the Svasemis, I don't think they really understood him. Because I think it's very hard to understand the Svasemis if you don't have a good background in Chassidus and the Balatanya explain Chassidus with Chachma Bina Das. So I, I have an affinity with Svasemis because I feel that I can understand it based on what I learned from the Balatanya. So I just open a Svasemis. You know, he's so brief and so concise, but he says a line. Hashem tells Avram Avinu, leave your land, leave the birthplace, leave your father's home, go to the land that I will show you. So Rashi says, why couldn't Hashem just give him a destination? You know, just say, where are you going? No, Ela Aretz Asharaka, you know, why, what, you don't forgive Moshe to put into Waze or, or Google Maps where he has to go and let him go. It has to be a mystery. The Svasema says one line there, just one line. I don't know if last year I would have understood it this way, or five years ago, or ten years ago, because, you know, you read things from your own vantage point, right? Everything is also subjective. We read things with our own eyes and our own mental state. But he says there that Hashem couldn't give him a destination, because then it would be the opposite of the whole point of what Eretz Yisrael is. Eretz Yisrael is not a geographical location, only. It's also, it's an existential state. Can you give up living a life where you have to control and predict and expect everything and allow the infinity of life to navigate you, open yourself up to the destiny that God has in store for you, not to get stuck in what life has to look like. I'm looking at this and I think, you know how much psychological wisdom lay in these words for people today? Because everybody's life changed, everybody. Rich, poor, influential, simple, everybody's life went through upheavals. I'm not just talking about because of death and illness. Even people who, thank God, were safe during the corona. But everything changed financially, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. You know what happened with the youth over the last 18, 20 months? In terms of addiction, in terms of mental challenges. You know, every family is now, you guys, you are rabbinic leaders, so you know what I'm saying very well. And people need to be able to get comfort and strength and stability. So if I get up Shabbos at the Drush, and I start off like this, you know, there's a vart on the parsha. I lost 90% of the crowd. Especially people who are emotionally sensitive. They are what we call HSPs, you know, highly sensitive people. Right? But if I start off and I say, you know, everybody, each one of us, have had a dream of what our children are going to look like. How much of that dream has come true in your life? Everybody is in. Because <laughs> it happened in every single family. Everybody has that one, two, three, four children. You had a dream, you know? Next Rebbe Kiva Eger, right? <laughs> okay, not Rebbe Kiva, next player Yeshua at least. <laughs> or whatever it is. The dream is not working out exactly that way, to put it mildly. Everybody is in. And there's the teenagers who say, you know, what did you dream of your life? How is your life working out? And then I discussed the Sfas Emes, the security and confidence of never getting stuck in what life is supposed to look like, but really opening yourself up to endless opportunities because that's the only way you will live the most meaningful life. It's those experiences that you could not plan for. You know, they say a line, there's two people who fail in life. People who don't have a plan and people who stick to their plan. You got to have a plan, but the worst thing is when you stick to that plan. So you got to take the plan, throw it in the dustbin. For that, I can't be uptight. For that, I can't be egotistical. For that, I can't be insecure. I really have to open myself up. And I just have to tell you 
that the emotional feedback as I'm talking from the people is just incredible. Always more from the women than the men, as we all know, because, you know, women just <laughs> have that, uh, that touch for, uh, for MS. And, and God, God graced me, and I realized I have the greatest story for this. Last week died a man by the name of Avraham Jacobowitz. You read about him? He called himself Eddie Jaku. He lived in Sydney. He was 101 years old. He escaped from Auschwitz, was shot, went back to Auschwitz. He escaped from a death march and hid in a ditch, eating snails for six months. Lost his entire family. He grew up in Leipzig in Germany. He published his memoirs at the age of 100, and he titled it, his book, The Happiest Man on Earth. He titled himself, I am the happiest man on earth. And I asked him, he loses his family. He ends up with nothing. He was in Auschwitz. He was beaten and tortured. A real Holocaust survivor. He was 101. He died last Tuesday. Vav Cheshvan. 101 years old. He called himself the happiest man on earth. The happiest man on earth. And I told his story. I read up on his story and I told his story. And I said, I don't know the secret. You know, we can only be in awe of such people and try to emulate them. But I do know that he had to have, his name was Avram, that he had to have that code of Avram. If he would have seen success in life as a life that's predictable and a life that you could control and you can figure out how it's going to go, he would have been the most miserable, miserable man on earth. He had that, that secret code that the first Jew got, So I'm just giving one example. This was just last Shabbos. You know, there was a huge group of people, men and women, and one of them, there was a bacher there from Waterbury, Waterbury, wonderful Waterbury yeshiva, blessed yeshiva. And uh, he told me, he says, last time I sat at a shear for more than five minutes was many, 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 many years ago. So I said, what made you sit here? And he said, because it was real life. It, 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 it was authentic. It was what's going on in my life. And it was showing me, Avram Avinu comes to life You'll forgive me, God comes to life. <laughs> you know, Elikim Chayim, you can't live on a dead God. We often live on, you'll forgive me, we live on a dead God. We live on a dead Yiddishkeit. It's like, it's just repeating. We're like chimpanzees, monkeys repeating. A boy who left Yiddishkeit many years ago, he's a musician, very smart kid. He told me, he says, I asked him, why did you leave? You have such a spiritual soul. He said, all we do in our system is we read recipe books. I said, what? He says, we all learn about what inspiration is supposed to look like. (laughs) Put in a little baking powder. If you don't have baking powder, put in another egg. If you don't have an egg, put in almond milk. If you don't have almond milk, and then this Rashi argues, says, don't use almond milk, use soy milk. And Toysvah says, no, but medvarim amorim in a regular, but b'shasatcha, comes the marsha and says, but the truth is that there's a whole different recipe. He says... And I always ask people, can I experience any of these recipes? Can I actually, does anybody get to eat the cheesecake? Or we only talk about recipes. (laughs) I have to say, he was a teacher. He taught me something. Don't talk about recipes. Give them the cheesecake. Give them the babka. Okay, I know in Boca you're healthy. Give them the quinoa. Give them the celery. Give them the kale. But give it to them. Everything but the kale. You had me tell the kale. So so that's exactly, I think, why you resonate so deeply is because you're speaking right to people's neshamas. And everybody knows, Rav Waiwai, that you're an incredibly sophisticated thinker and incredibly sophisticated speaker. I want to pivot for a moment and thank you so much for all this time. 
um, to talk about as a sophisticated, just leader. I, I just, I just want to, I just want to forgive my interruption. I'm no, also please, a little please. ADHD. There's also one more important thing, and I think this is the beauty of our people. And I try to humbly uh, tune into that. The Jewish people are sick and tired of politics on all levels. I don't just mean dirty, filthy politics, that too. But people don't like a Judaism that is claustrophobic, that is allergic to certain people or certain movements, that's based on indoctrination and cultish sentiments. They, they just don't like it. They don't like a Judaism that feeds on hate, divisiveness, tribalism, um, petty fundamentalism. That's not real. It's not authentic. The, the, the Jewish people, most of the people are allergic to that. So I know when I speak, I teach, I want to give them that flavor of, of a Yiddish guy that is very real, but also very pure. And I have to say another, just came to me, another word from the Kotzke. The Gemara says in Erev and Davchav Beis, that when Shleim HaMelech, Shleim HaMelech gave us two takanas, Erevin, Eruve Chatseris, and Atilas Yadayim. The Gemara said when he made these two takanas, a voice came out from the Rebbein Shalom Im b'ni yisamach libi gam ani. When my son is wise, Hashem says, I'm so happy. So the Gemara said, what's the grace of Erevin and Atilas Yadayim? And he said that some people, this is in a Sefer, Siach Sarfi Kodesh. He says, some people are very good with Natilas Yadayim. Their hands are always clean because they're aloof. They're segregated. You know, they're hermits. They're loners. Some people are Erevin. You know, they're machers. They're, they're, it's called social butterflies, social animals. They mix with everybody. They're integrated. Taruvis, Erevin. They're people's people. He says, the Chachma of Shlaima was, be Erevin, create an Erev. Be integrated, love people, spend time with people. But Natilis Yadayim, keep your hands pure. Don't allow yourself to get entangled in pettiness. Yiddishkeit always has to be a reflection of insight, of infinity. The moment my tribalism, my ego, my nusach, my chalois, my way, my habits become the dominating factor rather than just the way I may do things, People feel toxicity, and they don't like it. They will not, they will not embrace it with real enthusiasm. That's, thank you for adding that. It's a perfect, it's a perfect transition, actually, to the follow-up question I wanted to ask. Sophistication. So, you want to talk about sophist- sophistication? Well, sophistication. And at one point, you were the editor in chief of the Agamemnon Journal yourself, yeah. and were exposed to journalism and understand what it means to navigate the world of politics, politicians, community to do it with nuance, with sophistication. And I want to not get lost with the examples, but I want to talk about the principle because there's so much to learn from, and I want to know your wisdom on this. Um, There was an event the Jewish community had for then-President Trump and his re-election, and you spoke in very glowing terms. And and I'm curious that, and I share with you the appreciation, the recognition um, for the good he did for Israel, for the Jewish people, the Jewish community, that was probably underexpressed. On the other hand, there were parts of his personality, his behavior, his conduct, which were complicated for Torah Jews to endorse, associate with, align with at best, and maybe even should have condemned at worst. So, you know, do you have regrets about the way that you spoke about him at that lunch? Um, do you wish there was more nuances? Is there a lesson to learn? And a corollary of that, and I, I'm going really behind the beam here, and I don't want to get myself in trouble or you, um, and, and I'm not comparing the two whatsoever. You know, but similarly, when, when Rabashkin was released and, and you embraced him so fully, so also a role model for all of us of Amuna, he was incarcerated, 
disproportionately clearly anti-Semitism. He lived through it with enormous amuna. That amuna is a model for us so much to learn. But at the same time, there was a reason he was incarcerated to begin with. Not everything was pure innocence. And does the community lose that nuance if we don't ever express it, that on the one hand, we reject this part while we admire and embrace this part? So in both of those circumstances, was there a nuance that's missing? Is it important for us to communicate with nuance that we can simultaneously? You know, we live in this in this bifurcated world where you have to either, it's hero or villain. You know, which box do you neatly fit in? You're either the worst or the best. And and I live in a world, I think you live in this world of nuance, that there are parts we can admire, while there are other parts that we could be hyper highly critical of, and, and that nuance. So in both of those cases, would, would you amend? Do you still stand by the way that you spoke about them? What can we learn from you about them? Right. Wonderful and important question and challenging question. So in terms of uh, Al-Rishin Rishin, when I uh, introduced former President Trump, I don't know if you know how it came about, but it may be interesting. I gave a speech here in Munsi, it was a Shvuas Shir and speech, and I spoke about the importance of gratitude. To every single person, Hakaris HaTovin, I spoke about the gratitude that I felt the Jewish community in Israel and abroad owes to the President of the United States. And one of the participants in the Shir, a man named Laser Shiner, who's a well-known and great Jewish philanthropist and a personal friend, and the builder of our community here, known as Archaim and Munsi, um, heard a speech. And uh, he called he called the White House and he said he wants to make a lunch and thank President Trump and show support. And I didn't know about this. But around two years later, he calls me one day and he says, you know, your speech inspired me. And we're having 400 people honoring Trump and supporting him. And I want you to introduce him since you gave that speech and you inspired me to do that. So this is, so I said, great. And I have to tell you, uh, dear Reb Ephraim, that I received some very harsh criticism, very hard, as you can imagine. Um, one person wrote me an email, a Jew, a fine Jew, let's call him a very liberal and progressive Jew. He said, I was your student for years. I listened to you. I learned from you. I cannot trust you anymore. You have desecrated the most basic values of Judaism and ethics and humanity. I can't believe that a rabbi and a person of your stature would do this. You have disappointed me terribly. I got such emails. I did get such emails. But I have to say, I, I wrote back respectfully and explained, I explained my position. I even published an article the next week in, I think, Mishpacha magazine explaining. But I'll tell you what I told them. I don't regret what I did. For three reasons. Reason number one is, the Rabbi Nishalaylam told Moshe to show honor even to Parai. It's a tziva lachlik kavod malchus to Parai. Even to, he told Eliyahu you're going to Achav, who was a heinous criminal. He and his wife Izevel, show him honor. Why? It's not because Parai and Achav deserved honor. They were brutal tyrants and sadists. It's because the throne, the position, there's something called malchus. It's respect for the country. The king may be benign. The king may be a heinous criminal and we pray for his, for, for him departing, departing every day. But it's a respect for the, for the country. It's a respect for the people. The king represents the people. So I said, Kol Shekin when you're talking about the seat of the president of the United States of America, there's something called kavod hamalchus that goes beyond this president or that president, number one. 
Number two, I said in this case, I'm not glorifying somebody as a god and calling them impeccable and flawless, but I am going to express my profoundest gratitude when I see somebody standing up to the bullies of the world who will delegitimize Israel every single Monday and Thursday, who warned that moving the embassy to Jerusalem will become a third world war, and he stood up to all of them, who cancels the horrific deal that was giving the Hitlers of our day $150 billion to create a holocaust of 6 million Jews, not in five years, in one day, somebody to, to cancel that deal? Dayenu! Just to cancel the deal with the, with the Hitlers that Holocaust survivors in our generation had to hear 75 years later that we're going to wipe out 6 million Jews in Israel in one day. They had to hear it. Auschwitz survivors. Just that the fact that he canceled that deal or canceled sending $300 million a year to the Palestinian Authority that went to the families of shahids, of terrorists, that we, taxpayers' money, was paying people who stabbed Jews dead in Jerusalem. We're paying the families to encourage these martyrs that there's going to be enough money to marry off their children. Kedas Muhammad v'Islam. This man canceled it. I thought to myself, as an individual Jew, I owe him gratitude. Doesn't mean I agree with his uh, English grammar or syntax. <laughs> Doesn't mean I believe in the way he gives over his speeches. Doesn't believe that. Doesn't mean he's a tzaddik. Doesn't mean that he doesn't struggle with his own demons and skeletons and flaws and has his challenges. That I hope you know, like me and everybody else, he can repair one day. So I thought that's an extremely important point, and therefore I was, I was very proud of it. And the third thing is. I thought about one thing and one thing only. That was my ultimate, you know, I also consulted some people before I took it. But I thought about one thing and one thing only, and that is, as our grandmothers would say, is it good for the Jews? Is it good for Israel? Meaning, the day after the reception. You know, I'll do my thing. There'll be pictures, WhatsApp clips. will go around all over the place. Fine. I'll have my moment of fame and criticism. And, you know, life moves on afterwards, right? What happens the next week? When the President of the United States feels such glowing hakaras hatoiv from 400 people with yarmulkes, so they're not bashful Jews, will it persuade him toward create policies, to cultivate policies that will help the security of our people, Am HaYoshev B'Tziyin, in Israel and around the world, fight anti-Semitism, will it ultimately bring goodness to the world? And my conclusion was... Absolutely yes. And I have to say, for those who know, that the weeks after this reception, he has given speeches and allowed for policies to happen that were simply for the benefit of Israel. And for that, I think, um, we, we have to be you know, grateful and thankful. I also want to say one more thing. This was just on a personal note. I'm a little bit of a history buff. I was standing behind stage with the president, and he was flanked by two Orthodox Jews, Berkowitz, the yeshiva graduate, and his son-in-law, <coughs> one of them with a yarmulke. He came out to the audience, and there were 400 Jews. Everybody was wearing a yarmulke. And I literally shed a tear. And I'll tell you why. You may remo- you know why. When I saw the number, 400, it just brought me back to October 1943. 400 rabbis came to see President Roosevelt, including you had Reb Moshe Feinstein, Reb Lezer Silver, Bavram Kalmanovich, great Rabbonim, 400, to persuade him 
to do something to save European Jewry. And what happened? Roosevelt walked out from the back door. He didn't even want to meet these rabbis. Forget about disagreed with them. He didn't even want to meet them. This is a few days before Yom Kippur. I believe October 43. And when I thought 75 years later, there's a president of the United States speaking to 400 Eden with Yamukas flanked by two advisors who, who celebrate and observe Judaism, I said to myself, It wasn't just Trump. It was the moment of where Jewish history is. I was very grateful for that moment. So I, I, I understand the criticism. I respond respectfully. I do not, I've learned in my life, we don't worship people. <laughs> we don't worship people. We worship God and God has no image. We don't worship images. We don't worship people, but we're grateful to people. And we see the good in people, even if we see other sides in people. You know, I also learned from my Rebbe, one of the greatest lessons was, my job is to accentuate the positive in every person, so they should be encouraged to do more positive. Does that mean they have no negative? Does that mean they have no demons? No, I also have demons. I also have skeletons. And I can wake up every day and become a victim to my skeletons. Trust me, I got a couple of skeletons in my closet. You could speak to my mother-in-law and my therapist. But it's a choice we all make every day, and that's the choice I think we want to bring out in other people, including politicians who we may have some beef with in this area or that area. You know, in terms of the second question, Lahavdil, with my dear friend Rabshalom Ardechai, I have to say two things. First of all, I think that there is an unfair uh, statement about, you know, that there was a lot of unethical behavior, but he didn't deserve 27 years. Now, I think he may have made mistakes. I'm not saying he didn't make mistakes. I'm not saying that this business was run, you know, like Boca Raton Synagogue is run. You know, maybe there was some what we call chesedish malava malka elements and so forth. But fundamentally, I would ask anybody who's really interested to study all the facts, but to know the other side as well, to know his side as well, and really study it. And we'll see that the levels, even if there were mistakes and there were errors, and I'm not turning saying his business was run in the most saintly, perfected fashion, the, the sentence that was given to him was saturated with anti-Semitism, with bigotry, and with horrible, horrible Jew hatred. And therefore I feel that even if somebody, and it's important to acknowledge mistakes and not to glorify every behavior of every person, but Shalom Mardachai, he may have made some mistakes, but fundamentally you're dealing with an Ehrlicher person, an honest person, an Ehrlicher person, not just saying a Hasidish guy who likes fabringing and dancing, that too. But you're talking about an Ehrliche person who may have made mistakes, and I know some mistakes that he made, and the, the level of sentencing was a completely different level, and I feel, felt that the dancing of, of so many Jews when he came out of prison, there's no chash that people are going to learn from that, oh, you're supposed to and break the law. I did not feel that that way. I feel that uh, Klal Yisrael has an immune system. <laughs> And it's healthier than we imagine. It's healthier than we imagine. I just want to tell this. It's an interesting thing. Stam Anaizvart, people don't know this. Ayit told me that it was the 1940s. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was not yet Rebbe yet. His father-in-law was alive. He came into the Beis Medrash in 770. There was a Bacha learning Pnei Yeshua. His name was David Edelman. He was then a rabbi in Springfield. He passed away a few years ago, Rabbi David Edelman. 
He told this to me. He said, I was learning Pnei Yeshua. I asked him which Masech he didn't remember. It's the early 1940s. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe walks in. He sees he's learning Pnei Yeshua. He starts, the Rebbe knew, Pnei, the Rebbe knew Achroinim very, very well. Or Shainim too. He starts to shmoozing with him on the Pnei Yeshua. Okay, it was a nice shmooz. And the Rebbe says, do you know that this Pnei Yeshua wrote other Svarim? He says, I didn't know. He says, do you know the names of the other Sfarim? No, most Yeshua don't know the name of the Pnei Yeshua either. But the Rebbe, you know, so he says, the Pnei Yeshua wrote other Sfarim, but you know, nobody knows about them. They were not in the Skabel, but Futsus Yisrael. They just did not circulate. He says, the Pnei Yeshua did. Every Yeshiva, Malad Pnei Yeshua. Some people like Pnei Yeshua more. You know, Pnei Yeshua is a certain type of, of Mephirah. Some people love it, and some people find it very difficult. But, it's, but you know, Pnei Yeshua is the Pnei Yeshua, right? You can't ignore the Pnei Yeshua. The Rebbe says, the Pnei Yeshua became entrenched by, by Alayidin. He says, why this Sefer, not others Svarim? So Rabbi Edelman told me, he said, the Lubavitcher Rebbe told him, he said, just like individual Jews have Ruach HaKadosh, some Jews, he says, Klal Yisrael, in Yiddish, he told me the words, Klal Yisrael, hot collective Ruach HaKadosh. Klal Yisrael has collective Ruach HaKadosh. We have an immune system. And I feel that moment was a moment of collective Ruach HaKadosh that they felt it was something of a miracle that happened Zois Hanukkah when he came out that was a display of genuine emuna and betachen and a victory against, uh, against anti-Semitism. I'll just mention that there were five former DAs and there was Alan Dershowitz who's not suspected in being an ultra-Orthodox Chabad, Satmer or Lakewood Jew, or even a modern Orthodox Yeshiva University graduate. Alan Dershowitz is Alan Dershowitz, right? And he too felt and wrote, together with five former DAs, that this was really a a crime that was done to him. So I just think if we really want to be nuanced, um, we should be done, everybody, but especially in this case, we should study the case much more, and we'll see that Sinishta Zoy Poshet. I, I want to thank you for being honest on both of those questions. I know they're not easy topics, and I'm sorry for whatever pain, the, certainly the first one, the criticism that you took uh, caused. And, and even in the second one, I, I don't want to harp on it. No, I understand. I understand. But I'm, I'm fully macabre your, your explanation, and I never doubted the, the, um, the fact that the sentencing was exaggerated because of anti-Semitism or the tzidkos of, of Rabashkin in terms of the amuna he displayed. I guess my only concern or what I personally felt might be missing, and there's still an opportunity for, as we see a segment of the Torah community who are not honest in their business practices and headlines of them getting indicted, arrested, going to jail, who better has a platform for 99% of their speech to be Aleph Beis Gimel, and Munabitachon Geula, and 1%, and by the way, fellow Jews, let me tell you, it's important we're honest, integrity, this is who we are, this is what we're made of, this is what the world is watching, and I didn't. I didn't see it. Maybe I didn't read everything. Listen okay, to everything. I didn't see it one percent. I didn't see a point. I didn't see a point oh one percent. And I think that our children are watching. Many are watching. And there's no one who could make the the argument more compelling to say I was mistreated. I'm mostly erelach. This is you know. And doesn't even have to address it personally. But we and he could could really I think inspire people um to use that experience. That that's only the reason that I that I asked that. Fair, listen, it's extremely important to teach all of our children, everyone, in all of our yeshivas, in all of our communities, about uh, you know, the utmost necessity to be able to uh, behave in the most ethical way between ourselves and between us and the wider world, 
And as the Rambam famously says in Hilchas Deis, it's one of the greatest forms of Kiddush Hashem when the Rambam describes over there <coughs> the Jew who's Masayu Matane Bemuna Benachasim Habrius. It literally creates uh, you become a beacon of light and inspiration for so many non-Jews. It it it, it changes the world when Jews become a light unto the nations. Bein Adam Lamakba and Adam Lachavede, it literally changes the world, and that's our role in the world. I think we have to. You know, there is a little challenge also, we have to remember, I'm saying this completely in an isolated, uh, from an isolated perspective, not connected to our previous conversation, that, you know, I asked a person once, <laughs> I said, he was telling me a cute vart, you know, So in shlosh means in Yiddish you say, dirai. So we who come from uh, the, the Russian Litvish and Yiddish, you say Drei. And a Drei, Drei cup is a swindler, they say Drei. But by others, some Polish and Hungarians, they say for everything Drei. So he says, V'yim shlosh If you don't Drei, v'yotzachinam ein kasef. You know, you lose all the money. And I said, you know, listen, Jews have been suffering 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. And in the old country, they felt that, you know, if you're... <laughs> If you sometimes say things as they are, you're going to go out without anything. Just like people felt with child molestation. You're not allowed to go to the police because it's Mesira, right? You're being moister the Jew biyat akum and he'll be hung on the gallows. But that's not the case. That's not the case. The fact is we as a community could not deal with child abuse on our own. We tried. It didn't happen. It failed miserably time and time again with the poor victims suffering in silence and anguish. So Jews also have to remember that we're living today in a world where even though there's a lot of anti-Semitism, the opportunity to become a voice in the moral conversation of mankind is a gift that God gave the Jewish people in our century that is unprecedented. And when instead of becoming that moral voice and moral presence and moral beacon of light, Instead, we retreat into a cocoon and we forfeit a historic opportunity of enlightening and elevating the landscape of human civilization. We are forfeiting our unique mission in history. I think this is very important for, for, for Jews to understand. So it's not just about a question of how I run my business. How I run my business and how people see it and how I relate to people in the subway and on the bus stops and in the street and in the supermarket the way I hold the door for another person, or don't. It literally has an impact beyond anybody's imagination. People who walk around with a consciousness that I want to be an ambassador of love, light, hope, truth, authenticity, Avas Hashem, Avas Atayra, Avas Yisrael, morality, Midas they influence people beyond their imagination, and Lehepach. It's a great place to leave it with that inspiration, that motivation, and that charge to us. You've been very generous with your time. And uh, we want to thank you. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Bima. Thank you for letting us be inspired and even the, be a little uncomfortable and to share your wisdom with us. Hashem should give you a strength, a continued uh, refuah shlema. We hear that cough. You should feel much better so that you can proclaim the sophisticated messages of Torah loud and clear in a way that Mamash penetrates right to the neshama. Oh, thank, thank you, thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Can I end off with a little story? Please. Of course. For me, this was very moving. You know, a few months ago, the Jewish world lo- lost Dr. Tversky. Reb Shia, he was known as Avram Yeshua Hashem, Reb Shia Tversky, or in the secular world known as Dr. Abraham Tversky, who was a psychiatrist, a Hasidic rabbi, and one of the innovators in the field of recovery 
of addiction. He created a recovery center in Pittsburgh in the early 1960s. So uh, this is just, it was so moving because it, it teaches you the zeitgeist. I don't know, do we still use that word? The zeitgeist of our times. He had a priest who was in his recovery center. <laughs> and he recovered. But he went back to his church and Easter was coming and there's a big tradition by Easter, you drink wine, but he's an alcoholic in recovery. Dr. Tversky said, no wine, no wine. You have a disease. If you drink wine, you're going to go back into addiction. Grape juice. He said, we don't drink grape juice on Easter. He said, you drink grape juice on it. Well, he has to bring it to his superiors. <laughs> Dr. Tversky described it. It went to the bishops. It went to the cardinals. It went to the Vatican. They called Dr. Tversky. What's the source? Dr. Tversky realized, he says, you got the idea from us. We drink four cups of wine on Pesach. Okay? Those who can drink wine, alcoholics or people who can drink wine, not everybody agrees, but there's many rabbinic dispensations they can drink grape juice. Who? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein didn't approve of grape juice. He said, the Chazonish, the Briskerov, and the Chabinerov. They are mate grape juice, b'shazat chak. And you know what? The Vatican accepted it. That Easter, he can drink grape juice and not wine, based on the briskerov, chabinerov, and the chazonish. And I thought to myself, look at this. The Taz, Rabbi David Segel, Writing in the 17th century in the Shulchan Aruch, it says you should use red wine for Pesach, based on a Gemara and Pesachim. And what does the Taz say? Not in our times. No red wine. Please, nothing red. The Balatanya, Shulchan Aruch Harav, 18th century. In our days, no red wine, because the blood libels, the Jews, remember, are using Christian blood for Pesach. No red wine, white wine. That's the, sixth, the 17th and 18th century commentators of the Shulchan Aruch and the Shulchan Aruch Harav. The 20th and 21st century, a Hasidic psychiatrist, Avram Rebbe Avram Yeshua is quoted by the bishop and the cardinal and the Vatican for a heter that a priest who's an alcoholic could use grape juice based on the Chazonish, the Briskerov, and the Chabinerov. Look, where history, the, the arrow of history is facing. So this is an opportunity for the Jewish people to become moral leaders and influences of a world waiting for Gula. Thank you. This this was only the beginning of a conversation. We can't wait to continue it, Rabbi. So thank, thank you again you so, so much. very much. Have a wonderful day. It's been an honor. Rabbi Moskowitz, Rabbi Goldberg, thank you. And Hatzlocha. And Yarich Tarichu Yomim Al Mamlachtechem. Thank you. Rabbi Moskowitz, what an interview. It went on longer and longer, and in some ways it did, because we continued a conversation with Rabbi Y, and uh, we'll have to share that at some other point in some other context. But what about that that long conversation? Stimulating. I don't think you even realized we realized how much time had passed because it's just so so it captures you. Um, what stood out for you? Every part of it. <laughs> no, I really mean that. I'm, every part of it was. Uh was fantastic and something to learn from, you know, for me personally, probably the part that resonated the most and which was um, news to me really was the description of what it was like as the transmission of the Rebbe Sichos. 
And for me, that's so juicy on so many levels. First of all, just the, the notion of when he described a three-day yuntiv, how they would memorize 10, 20, 30 hours of shirim and then have to stay up all night afterwards and how he had what he called post-Shabbos stress disorder because he was so worried about communicating and, and coming, you know, and making sure that every idea came through properly. I thought the fact that they had a debate about what the Rebbe actually said and what the Rebbe actually meant and how they would record it for posterity, I think was fascinating also because for anyone who's ever learned Gemara or wondered about the transmission of Torah Shabbat to me, that was such a vivid imagery of what it must have been like when you sat in the shirim of Rav and Shmuel and Abai and Rava and how sometimes you have a machlokas two generations later. It's, you know, after a three-day yontif, they debated what the Rebbe meant. And now you got a sense for how the transmission of Masora took place. So for me, that was fantastic. For me, the overall reverence that they had, an understanding of the historic nature of what they were listening to, I found very inspiring. And again, something that I don't necessarily know that I appreciated or ever was in tune to. Maybe for the Chabad people who are listening to us, they're much more in tune for that. But for someone who didn't grow up in Chabad and wasn't really um, exposed to them growing up, it was just such a fascinating conversation, something I completely overlooked that you and I benefit from but that he was on the front lines for. When we talk about behind the bima, that was behind the bima. It was going through stories that people never would have appreciated, never were in tune to, and we gave them a, a really a, a front row inside seat to it. There's not a lot of people you could go behind the bima about the Rebbe Trump Rabashkin, <laughs> who every thought is communicated through the filter of a Dvar Torah, where he didn't prepare, he didn't know what we were going to ask, and he didn't prepare the Torah. It's simply how he thinks. His vocabulary is the vocabulary of using Torah to communicate ideas. He's just super, uber impressive. I love what you just said. I hadn't thought about it in that way. The fact that Talmidim on Motzei Shabbos could debate what he said is such an insight into if he's still alive and in the other room and you're debating what he just said, then imagine, like you said, generations or years later, we understand why in the Gemara. No, I remember he said it this way. I remember he said it that way. You see the same thing with Rav Soloveitchik, with the Rav. Where different Talmidim remember him saying different things, maybe two different Talmidim he said different things, where they remember it differently, and it does give us that insight. I was moved very much by his conversation with with Rav Steinzaltz. That's all. And yes. I love, first of all, we we were privileged to have Rav Steinzaltz in our community. He's an individual we'd love to have go behind the bima if we could have. Um, but he was that sharp, sharp personality who didn't hold back. And I love that. I love that you and I feel that sometimes also, where there are certain divrei Torah that we have or certain canned speeches, or certain we take that vort to that story, to that quote, to that research, you press play, and you're capable even of thinking about something else while you're speaking, right? I press play. I'm right now very, with a lot of animation, sharing this idea, while my mind is, oh, what else did I have to do today? And I got to do it. Because that, and that's an enormous risk that you become a cheap imitation of yourself, that you essentially become a fraud. Are you really still learning? Are you really still growing? What an incredible insight of Rav Steinzaltz then not only did he give it to Rav Waiwai, but through Rav Waiwai, oh. he's now shared that with all of us as well. You know, I will say there's a flip side to that because you definitely have your taglines. And I know people poke fun of you, you know, become the best version of yourself, certain taglines that you've said over and over again. But to me, that's a beautiful thing. In other words, our community knows that Goldberg's always going to hammer us over the head with become the best version of ourselves. And so you find different Vortlach to say it in and different ways to say it. But oftentimes you'll come back to the idea and the beauty of that is, though, is it really drives home a point. And again, you find different avenues to communicate it, but it makes it very clear that this is what we stand for. We're always looking to be the best version of ourselves. It means you don't have to 
conform to other people. It means there's no one cut cookie cutter option. In other words, there are many nuances within that statement, but you'll hammer us over the head with that over and over and over again. I'll tell you an interesting theme that's emerged between last week and this week, Professor Ruth Wise and, and now Rav Y.Y. Jacobson. You asked a similar question to both, which is a great question. We should one day compose a list of questions like Tim Ferriss, who right. asks the titans of industry all the same questions. Um, but you asked them both about the soundbite in our generation and, and does that cheapen or distort or distill the message. And they both unapologetically said the same thing. They said, when you have something to say, you have something you want to develop, you have a sophisticated message to share, you do not have to give in to this generation's intolerance for anything more than a soundbite. So yes, you could also condense it and reduce it. You could also publish it and share it in a soundbite size, but he's unapologetic. First of all, if you look at what time it is and the length of this, (laughs) then you know that he and we are unapologetic for how long it takes to develop ideas. But she also, they're coming from very different places and different worlds and different arenas in which they communicate, but both are unapologetic and they're not trying to conform to the collective ADD of our generation. And they are also encouraging us to have confidence in people that even with ADD, whether diagnosed or, or not, all of us to a degree have a collective version of it. That's not to at all diminish a diagnosed version of it, but they're not apologetic and they're not conforming and they have enough confidence and belief that if we're stimulating enough and if we involve enough and if it resonates enough, then people will listen. A reminder for a special raffle for incredible swag. If you, all you have to do is review. Think about it as reviewing so more people hear of YY. Of YY is amazing. And I know Rabbi Maskell, do you agree with me? There were parts or all that conversation which are really, really worthwhile to listen to as it is with our guests each and every week. When you review, it helps us get the word out more. Leave a review. It'll enable us to uh, spread the message. You'll be entered into a raffle to win swag. Until next time, our dear friends, stay happy, stay healthy. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.